1 Kings chapter 3 and verse 1. 1 Kings chapter 3 and verse 1. And Solomon made affinity with Pharaoh, king of Egypt, and took Pharaoh's daughter and brought her into the city of David until he had made an end of building his own house and the house of the Lord and the wall of Jerusalem round about. This passage is about a king leading his nation into the paths of God's truth. For modern Britain to prosper, it must put the word of God at the heart of its national life. This is what is clearly being taught in this passage. We must remember that it is the ascended Christ who is the governor of the nations. And our own government needs to realise that it is answerable to Jesus Christ. We are not answerable to the United Nations. We are most definitely not answerable to the World Health Organisation. We are answerable to Jesus Christ. Solomon has recently ascended the throne following the death of his father David. There have already been attempts to usurp him, but he has now established his position. And he now takes Pharaoh's daughter to be his queen. We can assume that she must have been converted to faith in the one true God of Israel. Because there is no mention of Solomon doing any wrong through this union. It would have been wrong for him to take as his queen an idol worshipper. We know that at this stage of his life, Solomon was remaining faithful to the Lord, sadly not later on. We must also consider the fact that Solomon in the Bible is a prophetic and typical forerunner of the Lord Jesus Christ. And so Solomon's marriage here to this Gentile queen prophetically foreshadows the bringing of the Gentiles into the New Testament church. Now, Solomon has begun major building works in Jerusalem, on a royal palace, on strengthening the city walls, and most importantly, on the temple, which would become the heart and focus of the nation's spiritual life. 
So Solomon is taking responsibility for the defence of the realm and for the establishment of true worship according to God's law. A godly king will make sure that the nation's borders are defended. We seem to have lost all sight of that reality today. The head of state, Solomon, knows that he owes his position to God and is answerable to God. As the Apostle Paul teaches in Romans 13, there is no power but of God. The powers that be are ordained of God. And Paul goes on, rulers are not a terror to good works, but to the evil. And the ruler is the minister of God to thee for good. Paul there is stating the ideal. Rulers should, if they rule according to the word of God, be working for the good of the people. Because they have been appointed by God. Of course, it is quite possible for God to bring into places of high office those who will be a curse upon a nation as a judgment upon that nation. God is not mocked. He has all kinds of ways of dealing with rebellious, sinful people. But it is our task to tell our leaders that they hold office as the servants of God. They must govern under the authority of God's word. We must not make an idol out of democracy. Pilate called for a democratic vote on whether Jesus Christ should be crucified. The majority can often get things wrong. Now, democracy is not a bad system of government. We're not against democracy, but we must not idolise democracy because the majority usually does get things wrong. Now, the Lord told the Israelites that when they are in the promised land and when they appoint kings over them, each ruler must conduct himself in the following manner. We read this in Deuteronomy 17 and verse 18. Deuteronomy 17 and verse 18. This is before they enter into the land. This is, this, they are told by God what they must do. When he sitteth upon the throne of his kingdom, he shall write him a copy of this law in a book out of that which is before the priests, the Levites. And it shall be with him, and he shall read therein all the days of his life 
that he may learn to fear the Lord his God, to keep all the words of this law and these statutes to do them. So God decrees that the kings of Israel must meditate upon his word, upon his written word. He shall write him a copy of this law in a book, and it shall be with him, and he shall read therein all the days of his life. King Charles, as our head of state, must be so only in accordance with what the Bible teaches. Now Solomon was young when he first came to the throne. Uh, he, He was in his early 20s. He was therefore conscious of his inexperience. And not everything was immediately right in the kingdom. We read in verse 2 here, only the people sacrificed in high places because there was no house built unto the name of the Lord until those days. So the Israelites at this time were making sacrifices to God on the tops of hills in various different parts of the land. Such a practice was similar to what the Gentile nations did, and the Canaanites in particular. This is how the Canaanites worshipped their idols on the tops of hills. And you see this temptation to emulate what's going on around. And we see this temptation to admire the foreign culture. That's what the Israelites were doing. Deuteronomy 12, verse 13. Take heed to thyself that thou offer not thy burnt offerings in every place that thou seest. But in the place which the Lord shall choose, there shalt thou offer thy burnt offerings. The Israelites should have only offered sacrifices at one specific place, at the tabernacle, before the temple was built. The tabernacle contained the Ark of the Covenant, a wooden chest overlaid with gold. What was inside the Ark? The two tablets of stone on which the Ten Commandments were engraved. It was specifically here, before the ark, that God decreed that he should be approached and sacrifices be offered up, not on every high hill. There was an irregularity at this time with the ark residing in a tent in Jerusalem whilst the tabernacle itself was at a different location in Gibeon. 
So again, Israel was not following God's pattern. The nation's worship then is not being conducted as God has required. Sacrificing on a hill of their own choosing was a conformity to the practices of the false religions of the nations round about. But it was wrong before God. As the temple was now being built, Solomon allows the use of the various high places to carry on temporarily. But by constructing a permanent temple, he was certainly moving in the right direction. But there were still these issues to be rectified. And the king knew that he needed God's wisdom to help him. He was perhaps thinking, well, surely it's good to be inclusive of other religious practices. The other nations sacrifice on tops of hills. Let us follow suit. But God says no. And we begin to see that no multi-faith elements must be introduced into the coronation service of King Charles. It will be an outrageous affront to the holiness of Almighty God if that does happen. And if it does happen, we must protest with all of our hearts. But we are told this is what Charles wants. He must not have it. And apart from anything else, it would be illegal to introduce, for example, readings from the Quran at the coronation service. And if we have prayers to Allah, that would be prayers to a God who is certainly not our God. There is only one God, and it's the Trinitarian God. And Islam rejects the whole notion of a Trinitarian God. We read in verse 3 here, Solomon loved the Lord, walking in the statutes of David, his father. However, he hasn't got a perfect understanding yet. Only he sacrificed and burnt incense in high places. So despite this irregularity of the worship on the hilltops, Solomon loved the Lord and had a genuine heartfelt desire to honour God and obey him. The statutes of David, his father, referred to in verse 3 there, means the statutes of the Lord readily embraced by David. As he was dying, David had solemnly said to Solomon in the previous chapter, chapter 2, verse 3, Keep the charge of the Lord thy God to walk in his ways, to keep his statutes and his commandments as it is written in the law of Moses, that thou mayest prosper 
in all that thou doest. So the king, King Solomon, must rule according to the word of God. Charles III must rule according to the word of God. His advisors are not going to tell him that. The only people who are going to tell him that are you and I. God's remnant of faithful people in this country. Verse 4, the king went to Gibeon to sacrifice there. For that was the great high place. Now Gibeon at this time was the major centre for worship in Israel. Here the tabernacle was located. Here was the brazen altar as appointed by God through Moses. Now this offering up of sacrifices at Gibeon was a great national occasion. We are told of the same event in the second book of Chronicles. Uh, 2 Chronicles 1 verse 2, 2 Chronicles 1 and verse 2, Solomon spake unto all Israel, to the captains of thousands and of hundreds, and to the judges, and to every governor in all Israel, the chief of the fathers. So Solomon and all the congregation with him went to the high place that was at Gibeon, for there was the tabernacle of the congregation of God. So at this national gathering were representatives of all the people, leaders of clans and families, local magistrates from all the different regions. And it was the king who had called them together for this act of public national worship. And so we see the king here acting as the focal point of the nation's obedience to God. This is monarchy acting as it ought to do. And this is the true model for the government of our nation today. This is why it is so important that at the coronation in two weeks' time, Charles repeats what his mother said in 1953. And Charles is under an obligation to repeat this because statute law demands that he repeats it. The 1688 Coronation Oath Act is still in force. In 1953, the Queen was asked, will you to the utmost of your power maintain the laws of God and the true profession of the gospel? Will you to the utmost of your power maintain in the United Kingdom the Protestant Reformed religion as established by law. Not will you maintain nice, cosy, ecumenical togetherness. No, the Protestant Reformed religion, and the word Protestant simply means testifying to the truth of Scripture. Scripture. 
Now the queen replied, all this I promise to do. And then she was handed a Bible. Not a Quran, not one of the Hindu sacred texts. She was handed a Bible. And the following words were uttered. To keep your majesty ever mindful of the law and gospel of God as the rule for the whole life and government of Christian princes, we present you with this book, the most valuable thing that this world affords. So at the heart of the British Constitution, there is a statement that the Bible is the most precious asset that the world possesses. Here is wisdom. This is the royal law. These are the lively oracles of God. So we have a glorious constitutional foundation in this country due to our godly forebears. The tragedy is that this constitutional foundation upon the scriptures is totally ignored, illegally ignored. Because a new religion prevails in modern Britain. The religion of cultural Marxism. The religion of secular political correctness. The religion of the abolition of nationhood and one world togetherness. The religion of all gods are equally legitimate. And so we are now in a nation which despises this glorious Bible-based constitutional foundation. So we see the task we have we have to make known to those around us the great blessings that this foundation has brought to this nation. We need to remind people of how the Christian gospel has brought such immense benefit to this nation. Who first founded the schools and the universities and the hospitals it was Christians. Who first founded all the wonderful charitable organisations of the 19th century? It was evangelical Christians. Who brought about the abolition of slavery? It was evangelical Christians. Not a democratic majority in Parliament. That had to be worked at. 
who initiated all the great social reforms of the 19th century, who reformed the prisons, who got the children out of the factories. It was Bible-believing Christians. And young people today have not got a clue about the benefits this nation has received from the Christian faith. They haven't got a clue. How was this country rescued from a violent, horrible, anarchic revolution such as France experienced in 1789? It was the preaching of the gospel under Whitfield and Wesley which made the difference. All the same social and economic conditions were prevalent in Britain as were prevalent in France. But God saved us from that violence through the preaching of the gospel. Now we are told in verse 4 here, a thousand burnt offerings did Solomon offer upon that altar. The enormous scale of this offering denotes Solomon's acknowledgement of how much God was blessing him. It is also an offering on behalf of the whole nation. With the king presenting the sacrifices as the people's representative. Here is a public and national identification with the one true Trinitarian God. God can only be approached through the shedding of blood in atonement for sin. The blood of the slain beast symbolises the satisfaction of God's justice upon the sins of the worshippers. And these Old Testament sacrifices foreshadow the supreme sacrifice of the Lord Jesus Christ upon the cross. What a blessing to a nation to have a ruler and head of state identify with the one true faith of Jesus Christ. And that is what Solomon was doing. Because Solomon is a type of Christ, a foreshadowing of Christ. Verse 5, in Gibeon the Lord appeared to Solomon in a dream by night and God said, ask what I shall give thee. By means of the many sacrifices at the altar, Solomon had been honouring the Lord before the whole nation during the day. And now the Lord rewards him with a special manifestation of his presence during the night. Dreams were one of the means by which God communicated prophetic revelations in the Old Testament period. We do not need to rely on dreams today because we have the completed scriptures. Now part of the miracle of the communication is that Solomon, though sleeping, is able to hear think and respond with an absolute clarity of mind. 
And the Lord asked the king what he would like to receive from him. Verse 6, and Solomon said, Thou hast showed unto thy servant David, my father, great mercy, according as he walked before thee in truth and in righteousness and in uprightness of heart with thee. And thou hast kept for him this great kindness that thou hast given him a son to sit on his throne as it is this day. So the king acknowledges the goodness of God to his father David. He acknowledges that he he is now on the throne because the Lord has kept his promise to David. How children today should thank God for blessings received by their parents. Though David had seriously fallen, he had, by God's grace, recovered. And so Solomon can speak here of his father walking in righteousness. So we have confirmed here the teaching that rulers and governments hold office only because God so ordains it. Proverbs 8, verse 15. Proverbs 8, verse 15, and it's the Son of God who is speaking there. By me kings reign and princes decree justice. By me princes rule and nobles, even all the judges of the earth. Here in 1 Kings, Solomon rightly acknowledges the hand of God in determining the affairs of Israel. He ascribes to God's providence the maintenance of the throne in the line of his father. And he recognises that the continuance of his father's royal line is linked to his father's personal obedience to God. Verse 7, and now, O Lord my God, thou hast made thy servant king instead of David my father, and I am but a little child. I know not how to go out or come in. So having acknowledged the Lord's goodness, Solomon now puts forth his request. He humbly recognises his youthfulness, and in experience for the task of governing the nation. You see, we do need men of experience leading us, men of seniority leading us. This is not an absolute rule, of course, and we're not saying that just because someone is old they will be godly, of course not. Nevertheless, people should not be promoted to high office at too young an age unless there are exceptional circumstances. Solomon here acknowledges his youthfulness and dependence upon God. But we do not do that today. There is a a cult of youth. We, We want some sort of dashing, youngish man at the helm, don't we? That, that's the sort of character people like. 
people think a, a grey-haired man's not, not, not going to be electorally viable. Solomon then is right here to acknowledge his youth and inexperience. Verse 8, thy servant is in the midst of thy people which thou hast chosen, a great people that cannot be numbered nor counted for multitude. Uh, Winston Churchill was 65 when he became Prime Minister in the Second World War. Interesting that. Now, Solomon says in verse 8 that Israel's population has much expanded and it is unique amongst all the nations of the earth as being the very people of God. The Lord in his providential actions has exalted the nation. The nation of Israel in Solomon's day became the envy of the whole world. So greatly was God blessing the nation. It is not unions with other nations or carefully crafted alliances and economic arrangements which make a country secure and prosperous. It is righteousness before God which makes a country secure and prosperous. Britain no longer understands that. So Solomon prays in verse 9, Give therefore thy servant an understanding heart to judge thy people, that I may discern between good and bad. For who is able to judge this, thy so great a people? You see, if, if you look at our mainstream politicians today, they have all been completely blinded by the false religion of a climate change crisis. It's the spirit of the age to believe that this, there is this terrible crisis, that we've got rising temperatures globally, and it's all because of man and his carbon Emissions. Carbon dioxide is actually a, a tiny fraction of the Earth's atmosphere and it's good for the world. Carbon dioxide makes things grow. And the climate has always been changing. The Vikings once farmed in Greenland. But you see... Our political establishment is just swept along by the spirit of this age. You see, this world has its God. The God of this world is Satan. If our rulers believed in the creator God, the Trinitarian creator God, they would not be worried about climate change. Yes, we care for the environment, but we also... Thank God for the blessings that he has given to us, the enormous blessings he has given to us through fossil fuels. Praise the Lord for his provision of fossil fuels. They brought us 
to the house of God this morning. Praise the Lord for that. Now, Solomon is overwhelmed. He feels unable to take on this great task. So he asks for wisdom. This is an exemplary attitude for any new government of any nation today. There could be no better way for Solomon to begin his reign than this. Lord, give me wisdom. He does not ask for wealth or military might, but he asks for a heart of wisdom to know God's will. We have recalled how our former queen was crowned under the authority of the word of God. Back in 2018, the Constitution Unit of University College London produced a report questioning the distinctly biblical and Protestant nature of our coronation service. We must be on our guard. Verse 10, the speech pleased the Lord that Solomon had done this thing. Solomon's humility and request for wisdom pleased God. He was giving priority to the nation standing before God. In Deuteronomy 4 and verse 6, we read, What nation is there so great who hath God so nigh unto them? And what nation is there so great that hath statutes and judgments so righteous as all this law which I set before you this day? So there in Deuteronomy 4, Moses knew that the secret of the nation's greatness was its adherence to the word of God. How many of our politicians today realise that? A nation must have righteous laws based on the word of God. Not laws condoning the killing of innocent life in the womb. Not laws upholding an immoral perversion of marriage. Not laws encouraging the profaning of the Lord's day through sport and unnecessary commerce. Verse 11, God said unto him, Because thou hast asked this thing, and hast not asked for thyself long life, neither hast asked riches for thyself, nor hast asked the life of thine enemies, but hast asked for thyself understanding to discern judgment, behold, I have done according to thy words. Lo, I have given thee a wise and an understanding heart, so that there was none like thee before thee, Neither after thee shall any arise like unto thee. So Solomon has laid aside all thoughts of Israel's earthly glory, but rather desires that God will make him wise. He has to act as the chief magistrate. He has to enact laws which must reflect God's law. The Lord is about to wonderfully bless the nation. Why? Because the leader of the nation has resolved to put the word of God at the heart 
of the nation. And because of that priority, the Lord says in verse 13, And I have also given thee that which thou hast not asked, both riches and honour, so that there shall not be anything among the kings like unto thee all thy days. So in response to Solomon's right priorities, the Lord not only grants him wisdom, but the other blessings for which he did not ask. Wealth, majesty, long life. In God's providence, godliness and devotion to the Lord have a tendency to the reception of earthly blessings as well. And this is why we read earlier in 1 Timothy 4 and verse 8, Godliness is profitable unto all things, having promise of the life that now is. And so the Lord gives earthly blessings to those who honour him. This applies to individuals and it applies to nations. Verse 14, if thou wilt walk in my ways to keep my statutes and my commandments as thy father David did walk, then I will lengthen thy days. Promise of long life. A further statement of the principle that godliness has a tendency to earthly blessing, as well as leading to the eternal blessings of the glory to come. Verse 15, Solomon awoke and behold it was a dream. He wakes up and realises that he has received a special revelation from the Lord himself. His heart is full of praise. We further read in verse 15, he came to Jerusalem. He stood before the ark of the covenant of the Lord and offered up burnt offerings and offered peace offerings and made a feast to his servants. The nation is going to enjoy mighty blessings. So Solomon includes all his servants in the court in this public act of thanksgiving and worship. What a blessing to a nation to have a leader who fears God. Under God's mighty hand, Israel will become the wonder and envy of the world. But not because Solomon was pursuing earthly glory, but because he feared God and sought to govern according to God's word. And that can be the only pattern for our nation today. Our government must acknowledge that Britain can only prosper as it honours the one true Trinitarian God who manifests himself in Jesus Christ. So we must be praying for the preaching of the gospel throughout the land, that through it many might be converted to the Saviour. Because it is only through that that gradually the word of God will again become part of the fabric of our national life as it once was. Society will only improve as there is a return to the authority 
of God's word and as, our, and as people are changed through the preaching of the gospel. That's the only way society will ever improve. Solomon put God and his word at the heart of the nation's life. And that is what we must do today. Amen.